bring us to a point now, in this very moment, where we are teachable, uh, where your Holy Spirit uh, would then begin and rebegin a work of renewal and restoration, that we would be walking truly in the steps of our Savior, uh, the very incarnation of the God of love. We pray in your name. Amen. Let me give you some quick uh, a sketch, a background uh, on this church, the church there in mid-first century Corinth. On the outside, they had everything going for them. They really did. On the outside, they had everything going for them. They had strong teaching. They had great gifts, vibrant worship. All the externals, you check all the boxes, they're good. But they were missing a critical component that nullified all of that, and it was love. They were torn asunder. They were fractured. They were divided. So all those things meant absolutely nothing, and really you could make a case even worse than nothing. They were self-absorbed, self-centered, self-focused. And so Paul is, is writing this letter that we know as 1 Corinthians. He's writing into that, into that situation to these brothers and sisters uh, to try and right the ship, uh, to try and help them work out and work through this hot mess of things that they had made. And it is no stretch to say that this is a letter that is still needed today. The human heart has not changed, not in the least. And we as believers in Jesus, as followers of Jesus, His disciples still struggle with being self-absorbed and self-centered and self-focused. Every one of us, every one of us. And, and our relationships bear that out in the community, in the kitchen, over coffee, in the church. It's, the evidence is plain. We need to be shown the way. And the Lord in His love for us is in fact doing that and giving us this letter and giving us these words here. It's, it's interesting the way Paul puts it right there at the very end of chapter 12. That's why I wanted to begin there because it sets the tone for everything that comes in, in what we call chapter 13. This more excellent way. And it's an interesting pileup of words that, that Paul is putting here. This is not meant to be like a comparison, like here's a way and here's a way and here's a way and this just happens to be the one that rises to the top. That's not what he really means there. It's not so much a comparison as it's an exalted sense of what he's trying to convey when he uses that language. He's, it's, he's saying this is a way that is beyond measure is really what he's saying. This way that he is describing there as he moves into what we call chapter 13. God has shown us, in that sense, a more excellent way, and one in which we must learn to walk. God has shown us this most excellent way, incomparable, beyond measure, one in which we must learn to walk. Uh, now, there's four points here I'm going to go through over the next few minutes. If you've got your outline there, you can see it's exactly where I'm going. Alliteration, to help us remember, four Ps, okay? We're going to try and dive into and explore together for the next few minutes. First, the priority of love. 
why it's important. Second, the path of love, what it looks like. Third, the pattern of love, the one model and example that we have. And then fourth, the power to love, how can we do it? How can we possibly do this? Okay? So those four things, the priority and the path, the pattern and the power. So first, the priority of love. Why should we do this? Why is it a big deal? Why bother? Tina Turner, what's love got to do with it? Sorry, little... 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 3, "'If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love.'" I gain nothing. Let's just stop there. So why is this such a big deal? Well, Paul puts it very clearly in front of us. He's making clear the priority, the absolute priority, the importance of love, and how it has to be first. And without it, it doesn't matter. It's like your basic mathematical equation. It doesn't matter how much you have on one side of the equation. If you put times zero, what are you left with? That's what Paul's doing here, okay? That's what he's doing here. It's so vital we understand. So, over, regarding speech, the priority of love over speech. Now, the Corinthians in, in, in that culture, in that time, they were all about, all over eloquent public speakers. These were the celebrities. These were the superstars, the rock stars of the day. Coupled with that, you've got the divisions within the Corinthian church, such that they're squabbling over, you know, what are the most visible and the, the greatest, the coolest of the gifts. And so it's feeding, you know, you see how these two things are feeding into one another in that context. And Paul is saying it doesn't matter. It, none of this matters. It is absolutely nothing, nothing if you do not come at this with love. In fact, he says it's worse than nothing. It's a sense in which he's saying you yourself become hollowed out. It's a terrifying thought. You become, it's not just your efforts, your work is nothing. You become nothing. It's just a horrific image here. So the priority of your love over speech, over knowledge, it doesn't matter how much you know of God's plans, of God's purposes in the past, the present, or the future, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. The knowledge in and of itself can never be the goal. It has to serve a greater goal, a greater end of love. If your pursuit of knowledge and understanding is driven as, if that's your end, no, no, it's worse than nothing. Love, love has to take the priority. Faith, perhaps you have tremendous trust and reliance and your sense of what it means to lean into God with all that you are in the worst, the, most, the hardest of circumstances and difficulties. It, it doesn't it doesn't matter. It's pointless, ultimately, without love. What about sacrifice? You may give and give and give past the point, way past the point of comfort into discomfort. 
You may sacrifice. You, the language he uses here, you may give your body to be burned. I mean, we're talking about on the stake, on the pyre, burned. He's not speaking metaphorically here. You may be martyred, okay, for your faith. That, even that kind of sacrifice is absolutely nothing if it's not motivated, if it's not generated, if it's not driven out of love, love for God and love for one another. Without love, without love, it's, it's worse than the impact, the effect of what you're trying to do is less. No, it's, not, it's nullified and worse without love. In fact, you know, the, the image that Paul uses here is you are a, a gong or just a clanging cymbal, meaning, meaning, yes, you may make a little bit of noise, you may get a little bit of attention, and then what happens? Silence. It's nothing. It's nothing. So, again, love has to be the reason. Love has to be the impelling force. It has to be the motivation behind any and everything that we do. So just bringing this down to the ground where we are, think with me, just in your own assessment of your life, what is the most important thing you do? What's the most important service that you offer to other people? It might be you're a volunteer for some agency within the community. It might have to do with something in this body, in our church. It might have to do with some, some individuals in your household or beyond your immediate household, your extended family. It could have to do with one particular inner individual that you are pouring yourself into. And Paul is saying, without love, that particular thing that's coming to your mind is Nothing. It is nothing without the right motivation, without the right heart, without the right force behind it. Love has to be the reason. Well, that's the priority of love. That's why it's so important. That's the reason behind it. But what does it look like? Well, Paul doesn't leave us hanging there. We, we need to know the path of love. You know, what would it look like to walk down this path? What, what, what shape would that take. Well, that's where we get into verses 4 through 7. Follow along with me. 4 through 7, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, this is not, you can see this very clear, this is not a definition of love. This is a description of love. This is what it looks like, okay? This is what it looks like. This is how it manifests itself externally. This is how you can know. This is evidence of love's presence. Now, you can come at this. There's three different angles that Paul takes here, okay? He explains this positively, negatively, and then comprehensively, okay? So first, let's go positively. Here's what it's like, okay? He says it's patient. It keeps doing good. It perseveres even in the face of difficulties. It's patient. It's kind. It responds with compassion to those who cause pain. It returns good for evil. It's what it looks as positively speaking. It's what it looks like. Negatively speaking, here's what it doesn't look like. Coming out, you know, turning the jewel now at this point, trying to come at it from another angle. 
He says, love is not envious. It delights in the good fortunes of others. It knows nothing of selfish jealousy. It's not boastful. It doesn't puff itself up. It's not arrogant. It's, it's humble, rather. It's not rude. It does not behave indecently or in a disgraceful manner. It inspires the people around you uh, to do and be good and honorable. Uh, it does not insist on its own way. It does not focus on itself, but on the needs of the other people. It's not irritable. It's not quick-tempered. It's not easily provoked to anger. It's not resentful. Love does not keep count of wrongs, but rather, rather rejoices, delights in an opportunity to just let them go, to just write them off. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It grieves over the news. Someone has fallen into sin. Praise for restoration. It rejoices in truth, deeply longing for what is good. Okay, that's the second turn. So you have the negative way it expresses itself. Oh, excuse me, positively, here's what it looks like. Negatively, here's what it doesn't look like. And then comprehensively, universally, here he makes some broad, big statements here. It bears all things. Love uh, forbears, puts up with, I can put it that way, the annoyances that other people bring into your life and the troubles that they cause. Love believes all things. It readily accepts what others say without assuming the worst. Love hopes all things, yearning for, looking for the very best in the life of another person. Love endures all things, sustains the assaults, even those that bring suffering and persecution. Again, this is not meant to be a definition of love, but rather a description of love and its beautiful fruits. These are its signs. You could put it that way. Now, with love, there are attitudes of the heart. The emotions are in play here. You can't get away from that. Don't fall into the heart heresy that some Christians want you to believe, which is just completely untrue and a cop-out. Something like goes like this. Maybe you've heard it this way, and I hope you've never said it. I just have to love you. I don't have to like you. You can't build that case off 1 Corinthians 13. That's a heresy. That's a cop-out. The emotions, the affections are engaged here. There's no such thing. Christian stoicism is an oxymoron. That's not what Paul is calling for here at all. The emotions are involved. There's, there's verbs. Yes, there are verbs here. I get that. And this is, this is predominantly about movement, movement towards another, people, another person, but the whole person is involved. Love entails sacrificial self-giving that seeks the highest, greatest good for another person, even if it costs, no matter what it costs, even if it costs, no matter what it costs. All right, so that's the, uh, the path of love. That's what it would look like. It's how we see it playing itself out. But there's yet more. There's the pattern of love that we need to consider here as well. Where would we look for an example? Where would we look? Where would we find 
a model for this? Who can show us the way? Well, there's actually only one who can do that. It's Jesus Himself, the only one to whom we can look and see that never a flaw, never a flaw with, with Him. And we see it in, in every aspect of His ministry, beginning with the incarnation, His not insisting on His rights, laying them all down for our sake, yielding everything for our sake. Keep your finger there in 1 Corinthians. Turn with me to Philippians. And this, if you're trying to find that, it's after 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Philippians 2. Paul quotes here from a hymn to make this point, how Jesus did not insist on His rights, yielding all for our sake. Verses 5 through 7, Philippians 2, "...have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus." who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's the very thing that we celebrate at Christmas time, the incarnation. That's what's going on there. So, but it's not just that. You see it continuing on in his life and ministry. Jesus in his engagement with the, the, with the, the people around him, with his own people. Think with me for a minute. Jesus grows up going to synagogue year after year, week after week after week, month after month, year after year. Think of the bad teaching He had to endure week after week, the lousy singing. There He is, God in the flesh, right? Enduring that sort of trivial sort of thing, but it's the manifestation of 1 Corinthians 13. His, his love for His disciples his forbearing, his enduring, his patience, all these things as, as the, those three years that he spent with them, their slowness to get it, to say nothing of embracing what he was trying to say. His love for his, his enemies, his willingness to say whatever needed to be said, knowing very well what it was going to cost him. We see it in His life and ministry. We see it at the very end with His death, loving us to the very, very, very end. You think in terms of what's oftentimes referred to as the seven words, His seven words from the cross as we see integrated there in the gospel accounts. And His compassion and passion for His own. Even while hanging on the cross... We see and hear His love. The way He models in all of this, His teaching is so extraordinary. We are oftentimes you know, looking for the, the one who is authentic, the one who is real. Jesus is really the only one who's actually through and through authentic and real. The only one able to do what He said we needed to do. If, turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke 6, verses 27 and 28. I mean, He says this and then, and then actually does it. Luke 6, verses 27 and 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who who abuse you. Jesus is the only one who is anywhere near consistent in these things, and He's completely so, 
absolutely completely so. So we're looking for this model. We're looking for this one who would show us a, a, a living pattern, an embodiment. Well, we have it. We have it here with our Lord Himself. In fact, it's, it's, it's so clear here, and I'm not trying to play fast and loose with the text. I'm just trying to help you see something. We can go back to 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, and read Jesus into the text. Look with me. I'll show you what I mean. Verses 4 to 7. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on His own way. He is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And that is such good news because He's doing that to you and to me. That's His posture right this very moment towards you, towards me. Jesus loves us. Oh, do we need to know that? Oh, do we need to know that? Read the gospel accounts of Jesus engaging with the people around Him with with a 1 Corinthians 13 kind of grid. Pray to Him. Commune with Him. Walk with Him in a 1 Corinthians 13 sort of grid. This is how He sees you. This is how He loves you now, right now. So, that, we, should, so we see the priority of love, okay? We have the, you know, why it's important. We have the path of love. Okay, here's what it looks like. We have the, the, the living embodiment, the pattern of love. Here's one who walks with us and is with us and is for us and loves us this way. But oh, do we need one more thing. The power to love. Think with me. Who among us, who among us really, you know, we did the, the Jesus exercise, putting His name into 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 7. Now, you try and put your name in there. How's that working for you? Honestly, I'm failing abysmally. We all are to the degree that we're honest. We need far more, as as vital as it is that we speak about the priority, and vital as it is that we know something of the path and the pattern, we must, we must remind ourselves of the power here as well. And we do, we have it in two ways. First, the Spirit of God in us and the love of God for us. The Spirit of God in us and the love of God for us. The Spirit of God in us. When you come to the point in your life where you give yourself to Jesus. You recognize your need of Him. You recognize how His his sacrifice, His death, His living in your, your place, His dying in your place, absolutely all you need and all you have, and that's you're putting the full weight of your hope and trust in that. Oh, gracious. It's at that moment where we are made new. We are made new. As Paul says in Galatians, new creatures. The old has gone, the new has come. Immediately something has changed. The Holy Spirit takes up residence 
within our poor hearts. We are described indeed as His temple. And a work begins slowly but surely over time where He intentionally, intensively begins to make us more like Jesus, the one who loves in the 1 Corinthians 13 way. He makes us, even us, more like Him. Maybe in fits and starts, but nonetheless with an upward trend in the graph. That's really good news. And that's the only good news that we have when we're looking for something, encouragement to find, oh my goodness, I can't, I don't know how to do this, I don't know how I can. Well, we have the power, the Spirit of Jesus living within us. And one of the things, one of the things that really we could probably say the chief thing that He takes and uses to free us, to enable us to, to love, is that as we grow in our understanding of the love of God for us, it's, it really is a proportional thing going on in our lives. To the degree that we understand that how God loves us, we are then freed and empowered and emboldened to love one another. And to the degree that we do not, we cannot and do not. We need to know and to keep knowing, to grow in our knowledge and awareness of the love of God for us, even us, especially because of the tyrannical clutching power of our heart's idols upon, uh, upon us and the domineering effect of, of the, the inordinate loves that we have for all kinds of different things in this world, things around us, good things in and of themselves that we love too much, that we look to and depend upon too much for comfort, for security, for approval, these lesser gods, these idols of our hearts, we need to know the love of God for us that the grip of those things would be loosened. That we would know the joy, the joy of being known, the joy of being loved as, we, as, as the reality of our security, of our standing before Him settles down into us more, we become settled more, anchored more, and again, able to love. You are loved by the Lord Himself. And in that, we are free to love. So if you know anything about spaceflight, and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know at least this much, to get into orbit, you have to have engines and fuel strong and right to get you to break the power of Earth's gravity, right, in order to get up into orbit. And then if you want to go beyond that, let's say you want to go to the moon or you want to go to Mars, you've got to be able to break free of Earth's orbit to get, out, to get further out. Well, how is that going to happen? Only with the right engine, only with sufficient fuel. That's exactly what we're talking about here. How can we be freed to love? Only with the right engine, only with sufficient fuel, and it's the love of God for us in Christ that frees us to love one another. Who is coming to your mind right now as I put this question to you? Who is hard for you to love? Maybe it's a type of person. 
Maybe it's a particular grouping of people. Or maybe it's a face. Who's coming to mind? You do understand that this all has bearing right there. We have been forgiven. We now have the power to forgive. We have been accepted. We now have the power to accept. In the midst of all the pain and the hot mess of that relationship, we have access to the one, the creator, the sustainer of the universe. Maybe we can talk to him about this. And when all feels lost, we have hope. The love of God for us in Christ frees us to love. Paul's showing us here, again, back to the very end of verse 12, or chapter 12, a more excellent way, a surpassing way, a beyond measure way, a greater way. And we know this intuitively. We, we, we feel it. It pulls upon us. We long for this. We were made for this. But it does beg a question, how can this take root? How can this go, go a little bit further, just ending, kind of bridging from what I was just saying, but by now ending. How can this take root? How can it flourish? How can love take root? How can love flourish in our lives? Well, the question actually points us to the answer because the way towards flourishing is for it to take root. It will not do, a surface treatment will not do. Something deeper, a deeper work has to take place in our lives for love to flourish in our lives. I read Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice recently. I know, I'm getting the shout-outs now. <laughs> Stunned look from others, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, one of the interesting things, many interesting things in there, uh, in, in Austen's work, is, uh, well, first off, just in case you know, you need to know, there's a set of sisters, the, the Bennett sisters. And um, each one is, is so, so very different, and, and Austen is very intentional about pointing that out to the reader. And I'm not trying to be unkind, but this is just the way she describes one of the sisters as being the most unattractive of the four. Um, according to, again, Austin as the narrator, and her name is Mary. If you've seen the films, in particular the A&E version, the longer version, it really comes out here quite clearly, certainly in the, in the work. The thing with Mary is she's the most religious of the four. Um, she's uh, always lecturing her sisters as to their Christian duty and their moral calling, always keeping that in front of everybody in case they've forgotten. At one point, uh, Austin, as the narrator, says this about Mary, Mary, in consequence of being the only plain one in the family, worked hard for knowledge and accomplishments of which she was impatient for display. It gave her a pedantic air in a conceited manner. Her religiosity was about her. 
It was all about her. And it didn't go deep. It didn't go deep at all. It was a surface treatment. And because of that, it just made her harder to live with. Well, where does that leave us? For love to take root and for love therein to flourish, it is never, ever, ever about the works that we do, but about the one that we have met. The living Jesus. The living Jesus. The God of love. God in the flesh. You see, in time, the impact of knowing Jesus upon the disciples. You see it all through the history of the church. And a few of us in this room could even speak to it. The transformative effect of knowing Jesus, and perhaps even more so being known by Jesus. If you want to grow in love, go to Him. There's nothing nothing more to say, truly. If you want to grow in love, you must go to Him, and it'll change you. He will change you. This is the most excellent way. We need to learn to walk in it. Can we pray? Lord, as we rightly put ourselves there amidst the Corinthian church, a divided, fractured, feuding, quick-to-take-sides group of people. We humbly acknowledge that we really are doing a disservice to just speak of them. We really have to say us. And as Paul was speaking to us here in this letter, he didn't mean this to be a theological treatise, but a practical message where love was absent. They needed to be reminded of Jesus, reminded and recalled, recalled to what it means to be His followers, to walk in this most excellent way. We ask that You would have mercy upon us, that You would kindle and rekindle a flame of love that is fueled by nothing else, nothing other than the way You have loved us, such that we find ourselves compelled to love in in that way, and that we would be marked and known as such people in a very unloving world. May you get the glory. 
May eyes be turned towards you. We pray in your name. Amen.